with issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. One of two, in fact, as we are serving a double portion of Chops Deliciousness. Yep, new word, deal with it, for you this week. This one is when I went over to Manchester to watch myself a little bit of Shakespeare. That's right, cultural. It is a play called Othello Macbeth, all one word, and it's a new take on two of Shakespeare's classics by director Jude Christian. It's very good. I recommend going and seeing it, and you can do that if you can get over to Manchester, to home, where it runs until September the 29th, which is next Saturday, and then it moves to the Lyric Hammersmith on October the 5th. Jude and I had a good old natter about Othello Macbeth, about Othello, Macbeth, OJ Simpson, Me Too, women in theatre, women not in theatre, also whether Tit Willow is actually a decent song. The other chops on offer is when Jen and Hannah chatted to Natasha Devon, mental health campaigner and author of A Beginner's Guide to Being Mental, an A to Z, from anxiety to zero fucks given. I'm a bit gutted I wasn't in on this actually, it's a really fascinating chat and topics covered include the rise of self-harm among children, particularly among young girls, the perils of social media for all of us and how we can all learn to feel better about ourselves. They also talk about Natasha's excellent Where's Your Head At campaign, which aims to make workplaces more savvy about mental health issues, which is a very good thing, I think. You can find out more info on that at www.wheresyourheadat.org. It's well worth a look. As ever, you can do us a massive solid by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Five stars, please. And if you haven't subscribed already, come on, subscribe and let us pop up in your podcast timeline. Yeah, the technical stuff might not be uh, my forte, to be honest with you. But you will get us on a Wednesday and Sunday when we release a new podcast. If you have a spare few quid and you'd like to help us keep going and making more women championing content, then we have a Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash standard issue. Anything you want to give is very much appreciated. And thank you to all of you who have already donated. Again, very much appreciated, you absolute smashers. If you're listening to this on Sunday, our next live show is Tuesday at the Leicester Square Theatre, where me and the boss... That's right, our Sarah Millican are chatting to Nigella Lawson, Jodie Prenger and Samira Ahmed. It's going to be cool. There are a few tickets left and you can find these at sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. There's also details of all our other gigs there. And the one after that is again at Leicester Square Theatre on October the 28th and features June Sarpong, Lisa Riley and Stacey Solomon. Crocking birds absolutely cracking birds they are great fun as well something always happens that can't be seen can cannot be seen on a podcast because you can't see things on a podcast so it is well worth getting a ticket and we do like to see your faces in front of our faces give us a follow if you're not already on twitter at standard issue uk or you can follow us individually i'm at mixter noonan hannah is at that dunleavy and jen is at inspira jen but enough of me wanging on Although a bit more of me as I chat to brilliant director Jude Christian. Hello, Mickey here. I'm at home in Manchester and by that I mean the film art and theatre palace rather than me sat in my pants on my sofa scratching, although that does happen a lot. I've just seen the play Othello Macbeth, all one word, and I'm joined by director Jude Christian. Hey Jude. Hey. Thanks for joining me. No worries. 
Othello and Macbeth is, to quote the blurb, an audacious condensed stage in our, well, Othello and Macbeth. I've just seen it, obviously. But can you give the listeners a bit more info on what Othello and Macbeth is and why it exists? Well, it exists because Home and the Lyric and Hammersmith wanted me to direct a double bill of two very, very famous plays. And I think I have the kind of brain that doesn't do things in a straightforward fashion. So as soon as I started looking at them, I was like, what are the links between them? How can you... How can you make sense of programming them side by side apart from just going they're both on the GCSE drama syllabus? Oh, so they chose Othello and Macbeth yeah. and just like do what you will with them. Exactly. Well, I think initially they thought that I would turn in quite a sensible, elegant production of the two plays side by side. Have they seen or heard of you before? Well, I mean, you'd think they'd have known. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and actually, I was, I was quite belligerent about it at the start. I, I did a slightly fatal thing of almost arguing myself out of the job mm-hmm. because... I'd always loved Shakespeare, but there's a lot of it about, and I think I initially questioned why do it at all. I definitely questioned, did I want to do it? Yeah. And if I felt all of those things, should I do it? But I was interested in both theatres. I, I felt a really strong sense of artistic affinity with the two of them, and so I felt like it might be a fun thing to explore and to play with. And then I got myself really stuck on thinking about Othello and thinking about how much I hated the amount of stage time given to the man who kills his wife and the lack of attention given to the woman who dies. In fact, the two women who die. And then I went home having, in quite a grumpy way, gone, well, I don't know how I feel about the plays. Maybe I don't want to do them at all. And I sat down on my sofa quite hungover and watched all nine hours of the O.J. Simpson Made in America documentary. Oh, my God, it's one of the best documentaries ever. So We're it's obsessed amazing. with it on Standard Issue. But you sit there and you go... First of all, you sit there going, oh, it's Othello. It's the plot of Othello in yeah. a way that I have never quite comprehended before. But also, I found myself hitting this real turning point in it where... They deconstruct brilliantly the racial politics behind the trial and everything else. And then it gets to the point of announcing the not guilty verdict. And they said, and then here's lots of footage of white people out protesting. And I looked at it and I was like, what they're not saying is that that's women. Like, there's a lot of women there. And I feel like what the documentary didn't explore in the same way that it explored America's problem with racial politics was the prevalence of cases in America of... People, for example, who are renowned for their athletic prowess, men who are held up as examples of um, role models in society, and quite often who come from difficult backgrounds and gain privilege through their physical prowess, um, murdering women or assaulting women and and the the complexities around that. um, it It was not long after that trial in America of a guy called Brock Turner who essentially assaulted an unnamed young woman and she gave this amazing statement in court which was all addressed to him and it opened with the line you don't know me but you've been inside me and that's why we're here and she talks about what it was like for her to read the details online of her own sexual assault while blackout drunk and then at the bottom of the article to see his swimming times listed and for everyone to talk about the tragedy of this scholarship boy having his future career destroyed for what his father described in court as 20 minutes of action. And this is when he was sticking his fingers inside an unconscious young woman on the ground outside a party. So I thought about all of these things, and I thought about... And you punched um, a few walls. I punched, yeah, I've punched a lot of walls. Um, And then I thought about how, you know, violence is inherent in the patriarchy and it destroys us all and we must overcome it with love. Uh, And then I made a son of a breath. Um, (laughs) I decided to go on a bit of an offensive and I I also think that the thing about being asked to direct Shakespeare is that when you're a text-based theatre director, you are usually not the primary author. Um, Particularly in new writing in this country, we have a really strong culture of new writing and I work quite a lot at the Royal Court, for example, and 
um, the general ideological hierarchy is that the writer's voice on a new play is the most important one, which I really understand and I, and I find a lot of satisfaction in working with writers on those terms and finding creative space as a director. But I think that I believe that directing is a creative art form in its own right. Mm-hmm. And it can be quite hard sometimes to find that balance of not feeling like you are in service to text. And one of the reasons for that is quite stringent copyright laws that means that you can't just ride roughshod over things that a writer has written. You know, we have writers like Beckett where the estate will quite vehemently um, protect the way in which his work is presented, even though he's long gone and even though he was an innovator in his own right. Um, So it's not often as a director you get given a text-based play, but you know that you can do whatever the hell you like with it. And with Shakespeare, we have that. And we have it... Per, firstly, because Shakespeare's long dead and it's all out of copyright, and also he how is we got well the plays. dead. He's so dead. But also, how we Sorry, got the plays alert. is so random. Let's <laughs> um, just take a moment to pour one out for William Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> I studied English at university, so I studied quite a lot of Shakespeare. And um, oh, I'm with you on when that. When they're going, okay, yeah. so there's like the seventh folio, and then there's like entire books written about how maybe King Lear is two different versions because there's 400, 400 lines difference between them, and probably this section um, is only known to us because some actor ran around the print shop hoping to make a quick buck and just recited as much of his own part as he can remember. <laughs> I feel like someone told me there's a, there's a version of Romeo and Juliet where it's like, it was clearly the actor playing Mercutio who just gave in all his lines and then it's like, and Re- then Romeo says like, blah, blah, something about a window. And so uh, the instability of the text means they're sort of, you know, ripe for a bit of a get-in. But also, because we put it on all the time, like, all the time. People are used to seeing it reinterpreted. You obviously have audiences and critics who feel a great sense of fidelity and protectiveness towards Shakespeare and want it to be performed the same as it was when they first saw it in its original version 500 years ago. That's weird. uh, I find that weird. Yeah, a bit strange. Um, Let's never move on, people. Exactly. Well, I was talking about this with someone the other day and just going, in, in what other sector would you go guys we peaked 500 years ago (laughs) like i know that science seems interesting now but let's just let's just acknowledge that the greatest scientist of all time lived you know 500 years ago and that the rest of us are just we're never going to reach that never no um so with all of this in my head i i thought it would be a positive thing to take on the fact that we're overloaded Shakespeare all the time as being our cultural heritage and to go great then as an artist living within this culture I want to take my heritage and use it for my own ends and so I just started chopping and cutting around the plays I didn't want to completely rewrite I think I knew that one of the things that I wanted to do apart from deliver a version of both plays that I would enjoy watching which is very selfish of me there are things that I love about Shakespeare and there are things that make me want to be sick in my hands so I'm just going to make a, I'm going to make a version where I find it I find myself less often stopping to go, I can't enjoy it anymore because the the dominance given to that man is so infuriating. Yeah. I wanted to make it easier for me to enjoy the stories. And the other thing that I wanted to do, because they're so well known, and I knew that a lot of audiences who came to them would have seen them, would have read them before, would know what they mean, um, I wanted to get us to think about what it means to tell these stories again and again, what it means to us as a society to be foregrounding these voices or even to be projecting these value systems um, and how actually when you read through the the action of the two plays and particularly when you start doing a little bit of gender flipping you realise how the language is constantly about how men need to man up men need to stop crying like a woman need to stop being scared like a girl and that the only way to prove your nobility is to pick up a sword and go and hack someone to pieces and I think that the plays 
morally condemn violence with one hand and then morally assert it with the other. And I, as a pacifist, don't think that that is something we should be propagating in society today. So I didn't want to mess with the action of the plays too much because I wanted to be able to present them to the audience as they are often presented, but just in a way that would allow people to think about them a little bit differently. You are audacious. I am audacious. Yeah. It's just one of the things about me. <laughs> <laughs> so, the plays are not the full length. They've both been condensed. And yeah. so the runtime for both together comes in at about two hours 40, I think, yeah. with an interval. They're both about an hour 10. And yeah. There's an interval, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How do you even start taking two very long, very well-known plays and adapting them and keeping it all in your head and working <laughs> out how it all works? As a first rough cut, Othello was dead easy because I just went, I'm going to cut all the scenes that don't have a woman in them. And I cheated very slightly because I condensed the Duke and Lodovico into a single character, which I think is quite a normal doubling. A lot of people do it because the Duke is there lots at the beginning and Lodovico is there a bit at the end and the, the twain don't meet. Yeah. And I made that character female because I knew from the off that I wasn't interested in just going all men bad, all women sad, helpless victims. Yeah. I, I knew that I wanted to set it in a contemporary setting, that I wanted the clothes to be contemporary and, and the sensibilities, and it felt... I, just, I was not interested in portraying a society that doesn't look like the one that we have now, where there are women in positions of power. And I was interested in, for example, portraying women in positions of power who are quite hands-off about the injustice towards other women. I think that every single woman in Othello and Macbeth, and Othello and Macbeth is complicit in patriarchy as well. And it felt like a really sharp way of showing that. But with that little cheat, even with that little cheat, it's really easy to cut Othello down to being an hour long if you just take out any scene that only has men in it because the majority of the play is Iago turning to camera and going, so evil, so unspecifically, deliciously evil, at length. And then And then Othello going, my wife is cheating on me, it's so tragic for oh, me. Oh, like, such and a like, prick. Why, it's just, oh. like, it's infuriating. And also, I, you know, I felt real responsibility with Othello because I also feel like, I feel like Shakespeare's portrayal of him is racist. Absolutely. And, yeah. and I had really fascinating conversations with Eri, the actor who's playing Othello, who... I think like every man of colour who is coming to that role is going, what am I putting in the world here? What does it mean for me to take on this role and, and to perpetuate it? And I think that he's done an absolutely beautiful job of finding an Othello who is so human and fragile. He said to me, I don't want it to be about Othello being some sap who has his brain manipulated by deliciously evil Iago and then goes crazy because his inherent savagery just takes over. Yeah. He said, I want to ground him as being a man who um, thinks he's on top of the world and then when that is ripped from him, instantly leaps to this place of insecurity because of the difficult ladder that he's had to climb and struggles so much with that. So I wanted to take a lot of stuff away from Othello but also it was to do with um, wanting to find maybe a, an alternative in that character that would still portray the sexual politics of the time and the racial politics of the time in a way that felt more relevant to the world that we're living in now and less like it was sort of leaning on outdated Western European stereotypes about non-white Western Europeans. Because we've solved racism, right? Exactly. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, surely Western Europe solved everything, right? Yes, yeah, uh, for sure. 
Yes, so that, that was the process of condensing Othello. And then I looked at Othello and went, okay, the play ends with three women who have been really badly treated. Two of them have been murdered by their own That's husbands. That's pretty bad treatment. It's pretty yep. bad. Um, and Bianca just sort of generally gets quite badly treated by everyone, is hovering around at the fringes and no one really cares about her. But I was interested in making her an observer to the action. And then I got excited about going, those three women might as well just become the three women in Macbeth who appeared to be messing with men for no reason whatsoever. Literally pulling the strings. Yes, literally pulling the strings. Um, it's a little design spoiler. Sorry, it's good. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, and at that point, it got really fun. I think I, I was reading a lot of stuff about violent responses to sexism. I was making a show with a company called Rashdash. Um, I are, love Rush Dash, they're, they're amazing. They're great, they're so much fun. Excellent we were making a show in a car park in Leeds, and it was about women walking alone late at night all over the world, and about the constant fear that we all have of being attacked by men, um, but the constant fear that women in particular countries and particular places carry really strongly with them. And as part of that show, they just did some amazing research, and they found lots of incidences of women who are fighting fire with fire. So the Gulabi gang in India, who dress in pink saris and go around the houses of men who are abusing their wives and just beat them with sticks um, or a woman in Mexico City who calls herself the Blonde Avenger and Tarantino style gets on buses in a blonde wig and a pair of aviators and a check shirt and shoot bus drivers in the head as a protest against right. women being assaulted when they're on the bus at the end of the line and there are moments of that where you again the, the part of you that's like growing up on things like Kill Bill is going great this is the answer just kill them all um, momentarily there's a little buzz that comes from that and then instantly you go well A I don't want to I don't want people to kill each other and B it doesn't solve anything and C it is troubling that that feels like A the most effective thing and B a, a momentarily satisfying recall if I batter him it's not going to make him go, violence is not the answer, and now it will stop. So yeah. violence begets violence. Absolutely. Blood will have blood. And it was so satisfying to take that idea that was quite juvenile, and also, unashamedly, I knew that the ending of Othello would therefore look really sick as we trans transitioned into Macbeth. I was like, I can see this in my head, and I just need the sound and lighting to make it go boom. But then to, to work that journey through Macbeth, it's where it became really helpful to have the existing play. I think if I'd been trying to write a second half, it would have been really hard not to make it all sort of um, moralise-y and kind of signpost it. Yeah, but because the action of Macbeth is its own play and it's really knotty, I sort of just threw Desdemona and Amelia and Bianca into it and I had an idea of nicking bits of Macbeth to give to them and finding thoughts which I felt might resonate with being a conversation between the three of them about how it was all going uh, and whether they all felt the same that men deserved violent death in vengeance for what they'd been doing to women um, and I I found this really fascinating dialogue sort of just emerging and then I just played with it and shaped it and saw it through to the bloody end because all the words are Shakespeare's words aren't they yeah apart from the very very ending which are Elizabeth Barrett Browning's because I thought I wanted something that sat in iron like pentameter in sonnet form and I wanted it to be the voice of a woman and it felt like to put in something really contemporary would be again it would feel didactic I, I wanted a sentiment about love that I couldn't find in, in the words of the play that wouldn't make it feel like Desdemona's lesson was going but, and after all this, I still love Othello, even though he murdered me. Yeah. But I, I, I felt like it would be really easy to end the whole production on a point of going, everything is miserable and sad, and humanity is terrible and, there, and there's no hope for us. And if nothing else, I'm a little bit bored 
of middle-class women getting given a stage to make work and making work about how patriarchy is terrible and ending it by crying and sloping off into the darkness. <laughs> I'm a bit like, if you've got the stage, start, start fronting some alternatives because otherwise we're just sat here. And the only other bit of text that's gone in is a song by um, an amazing singer-songwriter and also an amazing actor called Angina Fasan, who I'm really obsessed with her voice. I think it's incredible. And she released an EP last year and there's this song in it called Old Sister. And I found myself listening to it over and over and over again and going, because I've, I've got a brain that wants to put music in shows in a way that's quite on the nose because I love songs. I, I did that teenage thing where you've got like a song that sums up your feelings for every occasion. Yeah, so I think quite often that bleeds into my work. And I was like, I just feel like there is a moment here to use an incredibly beautiful piece of music to very explicitly say that the world is cruel to women sometimes um, and that that love is something that's always going to be with us but it's a quite complicated and painful thing and that felt really perfect for a moment in which you know Desdemona talks about a woman who's been destroyed by her love sadly singing her way away better than the one that I think is in the Shakespeare which is someone just saying tit willow over and over again Um, (laughs) come on tit willow I mean try it tit willow things feel better right no, you're right, actually. No, I feel bad now. I'm going to go back and change it. Sorry, Jude. <laughs> just make that Maybe just the same tune, but then yeah, singing the Tit Willow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Othello and Macbeth, the characters, are both sort of viewed as tragic heroes, when in fact, war heroics aside, they are quite weak, easily influenced men. Well, I'd say, particularly with Macbeth, little to no backbone. Mm-hmm. Why are we so forgiving of these flaws? In Shakespeare's men... And in a way that's carried into the toxic masculinity that we see every day, that we're trying to fight every day in today's world. Because patriarchy. Thanks, Jude. It's an answer to so many questions, isn't it? Well, it comes... It's interesting, isn't it? Because it comes from a really lovely place of wanting to find the good in people, wanting to celebrate human frailty. Um... For example, in in the analysis of so many men at the moment who are acting in ways that are violent and despicable, there is a real desire on the part of a lot of people to humanise and to understand why that person is doing the thing that they're doing. We know that suicide statistics for men, middle-aged men in this country are really terrifying yeah. and there is a really, really vital desire to take care of the fact that men have been raised in a culture which humiliates them for admitting vulnerability. And so I think that I don't have a problem with the human desire to to portray very complicated men as being fascinating. It's just that once you stick the label hero on it, you're starting to imply that that stuff is laudable. <laughs> and I think... There's a really clear bit in Othello where Amelia sits there and says, what is it they do when they change us for others? Is it sport? I think it is. And doth affection breed it? I think it does. And is it frailty that thus errs? I think it is. And have we, women, not got desires for sport, affections and frailty as men has? She just sits there and goes, we are the same, and so why do they expect us to behave in a different way or why do they value or judge us differently? Um, So... it's weird, isn't it? Because on the one hand, I go, yeah, I would like all people to be treated with the same 
the same view that they have complexity and that there is value to their lives and to how complicated they are and that their weakness needs to be um, a source of fascination to people, not a source of contempt. But on the other hand, we don't... I don't know if we often laud characters who are who are not created in that same image, do you know what I mean? It's hard to think about... It's one of these things that I'm saying it and I'm trying to work out what I mean as I'm saying it. If, if we're calling Othello and Macbeth tragic heroes and you and I are positing that maybe the term hero might be unhelpful, mm-hmm. um, who are the people that we want to put forward and, and lord in society? It's not like I'm saying everyone that we say is heroic and noteworthy needs to be... Flawless. Yeah. No, absolutely. Amelia's kick-ass, by the way, just to go back to that. And totally lost in every other version of Othello I've seen. Mm -hmm. But she is also flawed. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe she's more of a hero. I think the word hero is incredibly problematic because it it seems like something to aim for. Well, it implies that other people aren't. Like yeah. it implies Macbeth's that some... he's an out-and-out villain, but yeah. you never hear him called that way in the same way as like Richard the Third or anything. Yeah, well, then it is or, bizarre that or Iago is a villain. Yeah, but you never hear Macbeth called a villain. Well, and and it's interesting that Lady Macbeth, people are like, oh, you know, she's this fascinatingly strong character because she's so out-and-out evil, and you're like, is she? Because I thought what happened was she didn't kill anyone at all. She just her husband kept coming to her and doing that thing that you do when you want someone to tell you to do something. She just keep asking that person as opposed to all the people who are going, maybe don't do it. And then quite quickly, she can't. She, he just, she immediately exactly. He cuts her out of the entire yeah. process, and she murders herself, having been overcome with remorse. So, which one of these two is the evil one uh, in all of this? Macbeth. Oh, sorry. Was that a real question? <laughs> <laughs> women power back in Shakespeare because with the notable exception of Lady Macbeth Shakespeare's women aren't really renowned for being dynamic stuff happens to them rather than because of them Mm. how hard was it to flip that really hard well it was hard but interestingly with Desdemona particularly when you start looking at it and go why doesn't she leave him after he publicly attacks her yeah. for no reason and then and refuses at her to explain and refuses to explain why doesn't she just do a runner and I sort of just refuse to believe that it's because 500 years ago women were too stupid to realise they needed to get out of there and, and also that's it's domestic violence isn't it you, yeah you are there's, there's a relationship that people don't know about it's never as easy as just leaving yeah it's it's scary to think about leaving yeah I mean we had a really fascinating conversation in rehearsals when a male cast member in quite a throwaway way said, oh, well, um, you know, it's obviously much harder to imagine in a contemporary context, isn't it? Like a a woman waiting for her husband to come home and offhand going, oh, he might kill me. And every single woman around the table went, um, but just to be clear, every single person around this table has has had the kind of breakup where offhand you say to your mate, he might actually kill me. And with varying degrees of, I actually mean that, but it, I said, you know, the possibility is just present for, for men as well, but for a lot of women. But what became fascinating was unpicking all of that with Desdemona and going, what are the things that she's actually saying about her decision to stay with him? 
And this is sort of where I got the idea for where I wanted her character to go, is she talks about wanting to commit to the idea of loving him. She absolutely acknowledges how horrifically he's treating her and that that is unfathomable and that she cannot see any way out of it. But she just stands there and goes, I'm going to love bomb him, like I'm going to get him back by refusing to let his irrationality and his unkindness override the love that I have for him and, and the love that I know that we have for each other mm-hmm. and obviously it works out incredibly badly for her but I felt like there was an interesting active power in that statement and it gives her a real um, it gives her a really intriguing sense of drive there are lots of ways in which you know her morals absolutely belong in back in the mists of time when she's so disgusted by the notion that a woman could damn herself by being impure and cheating on her husband and uh, you know she's very puritanical and and I find that less 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 sort of endearing about but her. at the same time there is that and that definitely comes from the past but she was also quite contemporary in that she just goes fuck you to her dad basically yeah whose property she's supposed to be yeah and gives herself which I guess is quite dynamic yeah. But then becomes another man's property. Exactly. You know, there's a moment yeah. of dynamism. Yeah, and I think the longer... Th- it's not that I've given them more lines, but the, the more proportional stage time you spend with them, and also just practically the more proportional rehearsal time you get with them, the more you're able to really dig into those decisions. So it is frustrating um, looking at female roles in Shakespeare because... Yeah, they're there to be transacted. I had an argument with someone recently because I said women in Shakespeare have never got jobs, and she went, I beg to differ, uh, Juliet's nurse. And I was like, that's true, she's listed in the script as nurse. <laughs> I work quite a lot in youth drama, and it is really depressing when you're in those kinds of settings where everyone's got to come in and do a Shakespeare because the, the wealth of speeches to draw on and the wealth of amazing sentiment that young men have to come in and give an audition is amazing. And what's on offer for women? Everyone's sort of being like, oh... Rosalind, like she's funny and powerful. You're like the, the slim pickings, guys. It is slim pickings and it's depressing. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was fun in this. For example, I knew I had a lot of lines of Othello's left over, so I thought I'd give some to Lady Macbeth. And I think being able to chop and change like that was interesting. But like I say, it, it was complicated because what I didn't want to do was rewrite a play in which the women had a lot more power and agency and then go, here's an example of how Shakespeare doesn't give women power and agency. To some extent, I needed to um, portray that world as he did in order to make a comment on it. And I think there's definitely... Well, I would say there's a different version of the play in which I rewrite it and, and I give all of the women more power and agency, but I actually think the answer is just stop doing a version of Shakespeare, just write more plays by women now in which women get power and agency and convince theatres that it is possible that we didn't peak 500 years ago and that there might be female playwrights out there now who are better than Shakespeare. Oh, see now, I've got more Othello Macbeth questions, but that does lead really neatly onto what (laughs) I want to ask you about women in theatre and how it feels right now, because I think I did a little bit of research and women make up around 65% of theatre audiences, yet there still seems to be a fuck long way to go before there's anywhere near equal representation for women particularly for women of color mm-hmm. to see themselves to recognize themselves to be involved in the theater in in every guise from playwright to director to running a theater to doing the sound this just seems to be a real dearth of women but obviously you're in that world and i wondered what your take on that was 
I think that I feel really lucky to live in the generation that I live in mm-hmm. because you you look at I think particularly I look at directors who are kind of a generation above me and I think about the challenges that they must have faced in order to get space and also you know climates around working practice and things like sexual harassment being much more prevalent and much more um, permissible <laughs> like allowed by other people in those times and I, I think that I'm really lucky to live in these times because there are a lot of brilliant theatres in this country which are run by men and women but particularly women who actively champion female voices and who also understand that women can speak on behalf of all humanity I think that we're still living in a lot of like if you're anything other than a cisgendered white non-disabled middle-class man um that you that you're put in a box and that your work is seen as niche and they're like oh well this is where we'll try and get some more women in because women's issues and things yeah um you know there are a lot more people out there now who are going interestingly my opinion is actually relatable to everyone uh and maybe it should be marketed as such and framed as such and programmed as such so I think there's some good stuff going on. I think there's some really horrendous stuff going on. I think that all of the very public debates at the moment about sexual abuse and sexual harassment are interesting because what it feels like from the inside is that there are lots of people going, well, duh, we've all known for a long time not to sexually harass and abuse our colleagues. There are obviously some people who are being called out for really disgusting behaviour. Because they've gone, but I'm still gonna. Exactly. And then there's a lot, there's a really interesting thread emerging of like, isn't it a shame, the tragic downfall of this person whose work we will now be bereft of forever because he couldn't stop telling women that he wanted to fuck them while they were at work. There's a bit of that going on. I think I can get over that loss. How do you feel, Yeah, I feel right about it. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I wake up in the night with a bit of a pang and then I realise it's just indigestion. (laughs) I to sleep again. But I I think it's a really soul-searching moment for theatre because I think that some some of the stuff that's happened around Me Too is, understandably, there has been a real lauding of and support for victims of sexual harassment who have stepped up and come forward and you're like that is great I would also love for those people not to have had to have gone on Twitter in order to get something done because if people are reporting things that are happening within an institution that should be the point at which something is done about it yeah they should be taken seriously without having to have a whole movement and take to social media exactly and I think It probably all comes down to capitalism to an extent. I think that the financial pressures in theatre have a huge effect on how it runs socially. So I think that in in the bluntest possible terms, if you're a theatre who is opening a show and there are allegations against a member of your company, to fire that person would have a huge financial knock-on on your show. If If I wanted to axe a company member a week before we open a show... That essentially means that my show cannot and will not open the way that it should. And there's a huge paying audience who need to be there and see it. Theatre is an ephemeral thing. You can't be like, okay, guys, we're delaying the release. It will be back in three months' time. So people check themselves far more before taking action in a way that in other companies you you think and hope that there would would be instant suspension for somebody who had an allegation made against them. I think that there's a particular thing about how theatre is made that means that quite often that stuff slips through the cracks or people's reputations mean that there is a desire on the part of other people to protect them. So I I think there's a lot of really complicated stuff going on. I think there are a lot of really, really powerful conversations happening um, in terms of the art that's being cut on stage and in terms of working practice. But with that inevitably comes 
fatigue. I think organisations and audiences and artists getting tired of constantly having to be angry or constantly having to rail against things or constantly having to question and challenge what's being put in front of them. And with that tiredness comes people just wanting it all to go away again and sort of go, we've had our moment, like we programmed some women last year and it was a lot of work or, you know, we brought in some disabled artists and it was very expensive and so we can't do it very often. And Well, you know, old theatres aren't geared for disabled artists exactly. or disabled audiences. So, so it's, just, it's just really difficult because obviously that cultural institution is more important than the access of a wheelchair user to come and speak their voice on stage. Yeah, it's powerful bullshit though, I think that's the problem it is very powerful bullshit how do we how do we change that well we live in a culture that's quite fickle as well people like to bounce from issue to issue to issue and you know if you run any arts institution in this country at the moment you've got a lot on your plate on top of the normal every day of trying to run your job and having all of your funding cut out from underneath you to suddenly be making yourself 100% accessible to every single group of people who has previously been denied access it takes a lot of long committed hard work and for a lot of theatres there's no public glory in it it's just something they should be getting on with and they're being lambasted whenever they're not doing it it just takes a really long-term commitment and I think that it's something that unless you have some someone driving that institution who understands that there is joy in doing that in the long run and that it is only satisfying to make theatre which is representative of the entire scope of people who should be coming to engage with it and making it um, and that it is it is exciting and it is enriching to everyone's worldview to constantly bring themselves to, to sit down and listen to the voices of people who aren't normally allowed to speak on stage until we've got people running arts institutions who do that everyone's just going to get tired because people are doing it because they kind of feel like they're going to get in trouble if they don't and if the people who are running those institutions don't belong to any of those other groups, then it will just fall over. What I really liked about Othello Macbeth is I was in with a whole group of school kids. I didn't like that bit. They were really annoying. But my tolerance <laughs> for children is low. I admit that. For sure. But they're seeing a different version where the women are allowed to be strong. Mm. And they do have to study it. It's still GCSE text. Yeah. And possibly A-level text. I did Hamlet at A-level. So, yeah, let's give them a different version. Yeah, exactly. I think, I mean, I think the world can take it. (laughs) Um, If nothing else, so many of Shakespeare's stories are him nicking actual real-life events from history or pre-existing stories and then sort of rewriting them for his own means. And so you go, okay, fine, Shakespeare had his agendas, you know, he wanted to make sure he was in with the monarchy and that he was saying that monarchy is really great or he was saying that women are evil and not to be trusted and maybe it's okay to go around your neighbour's house and burn her at the stake for being a witch. That's fine, like Shakespeare can say those things if he wants to and then what I'll do is I'll take pre-existing stories and I'll say whatever I want to say with them and I think that young people should be empowered to do that with theatre and I think the reason that I always found theatre really exciting in school was not because I felt like it was telling me how the world was and that I should defer to that it was because it was constantly encouraging me to see what was in the world around me and then to think about ways of communicating to other people how I imagined that the world could be or communicating a lived experience that I felt might resonate with other people is what I always found really alluring about it and I remember when I was in school having I mean we just studied endless Shakespeare I I studied more Shakespeare plays in school than i easily than I studied any plays by women, for example. Same thing at university. I used um, to read the first act and the last act and then see who died in the middle. (laughs) That's how I'd go into my Shakespeare tutorial. Brilliant. (laughs) But um, 
I remember studying Shakespeare in school and being told that we could do whatever we wanted with it and, you know, really being told, OK, make this relevant to yourself, like, you know, take Romeo and Juliet and set it in a school and whatever, just being given a real sense of ownership. And I guess with that, being given the opportunity to challenge who was saying what and to, to frame characters in different ways. And then we got taken on a school trip to go and see a production of Romeo and Juliet in, like, a proper theatre and it was just the most, like, roughs and cod pieces traditional thing I'd ever seen and everyone looked really sad and wished that they could go home. Yeah, I mean, I think if we're going to make them learn it, let's at least make it fun for them. But I would, I'd be quite up for a world in which it gets taught a little bit less. I, did, I had a conversation with someone yesterday who, who, said I, who really liked the production and who said, oh, you know, I think um, it's, it's really lovely for school children because then they can be excited about Shakespeare and go back to study it. And I was like, that kind of makes me wish that I had made the most boring production ever so that all school children would go into complete mutiny and go, no more Shakespeare, and demand to study nothing but Debbie Tucker Green for an entire term instead. <laughs> I absolutely had a moment where I thought, having having studied English literature at A level, then at university, and then doing theatre reviews, and I just thought, I, I don't want to see any more Shakespeare. I feel yeah. like I've had, I'm full, yeah. I'm full of Shakespeare. And then there is something that draws us back, and it's when people do put their own twist on it now or, or yeah. tweet the narrative that I'm excited about it again. So yeah. thanks very much. Oh, cheers! Well, I'm glad you liked it. So what's next for you? I'm going to make a pantomime. Seriously. Which is, which is really pleasing. It's exactly the same process as making Shakespeare. You just go, what is a story that we've told ourselves as a society over and over and over again? And is it saying the things that we want to about the world? And what should it say? But um, because it's Dick Whittington, everyone just puts on sparkly costumes and dances around to pop songs. So I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to have less death than Othello Macbeth. Oh, what? Come on, Christmas death. I mean, everyone just, loves Christmas know, death. Maybe, maybe we'll kill a baddie. No, no you don't. Mm. No, they get sent somewhere. Yeah, oh, exactly. actually... I think in Jack and the Beanstalk, the giant uh, lackey. That's true, He yeah. gets thrown from the sky. I mean, we're doing Dick Whittington as a sort of naked assault on the rise of the far right and, uh, and Brexit politics. So um, <laughs> when I say naked, where? I mean in the sense of like overt, not, not a kind of really inappropriate... Not like Jim Davis' Cinderella or but, yeah, The moment that I realised that you could... Um, you could uh, present Queen Rat as being a sort of amalgamation of Katie Hopkins and Milo Yiannopoulos and then refer to her being the leader of the alt-rat movement, oh I was in. So, so when, that's Christmas when at the Lyric Hammersmith. The Lyric Hammersmith. <laughs> awesome, that's amazing. Jude, thank you so much for sparing some time to chat to us. Cheers, thank you very much.